Hello, everybody. Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, podcaster and author. This show is sort of an outgrowth of my newsletter, jessesingle.singleminded.com. I'm a tired podcaster and author. I uh, just got back from Heterodox Academy, uh, the conference in Denver. Very fun event. Uh, I think there were some listeners of this show there. Katie Herzog and I did a live event of our podcast, Blotch and Reported. Our next episode will just be a recording of that. Uh, it was really fun. Got to meet some really cool people. Always have a fun time at the Heterodox Academy conferences. What was less enjoyable was uh, I took a red eye to Boston. Uh, delayed, first delayed an hour from midnight to 1 a.m., which is whatever. Get on the plane, delayed another 30 to 40 minutes on the tarmac, fly to Boston, land another hour and a half sitting on the tarmac because they uh, had no place to park the plane to let us out. I don't think I'd ever experienced the hat trick of delays for takeoff, sitting on the tarmac, then sitting on the tarmac at the other end. So uh, everything's dumb. Um, the main sort of thing to discuss today, and I'm happy to take questions on whatever, is Emily Bazelon's long New York Times Magazine article uh, about use gender medicine, a subject I've written uh, a lot about at this point and talked a lot about on the show. I thought it was a really good piece. I mean, there's no way to sort of, it's unlikely I would ever agree with every word uh, of a long piece on the subject because it's very complicated and all sorts of judgment calls go into a magazine article that is always going to, you're always going to be dealing with like severe length issues in print. Uh, so I thought she did a really good job, showed the different sides of the controversy. It was interesting um, going online. It is complicated. <laughs> it was going, interesting going online and seeing a sort of, I don't want to make it about me, but like a version of what happened when my piece came out uh, on this subject four years ago in the Atlantic happened to her, where people are just very badly misrepresenting it, pretending that there's some horrible flaw, that she ignored stuff trans people tried to tell her. Jack Turbin, this this controversial clinician, is claiming, you know, he refused an interview with her, and then he's mad that he was. She said he refused an interview with her. Um, she included mention of Genspect, which is an organization of uh, you know parents who are more skeptical of youth transition. That means she included a hate group by this logic. This was similar to how I included a parent who had, I think, written something for Fourth Wave Now. So there's this tendency, if you even platform anyone who is skeptical of um, youth medical transition, you're platforming a hate group. And that allows people to disregard the whole article. The good news is, like, I, I pointed this out on Twitter earlier, but, like, the eight millionth time you say this article is killing people, people start to ignore you because that's a hysterical claim. And Bazelon's article was so clearly carefully crafted and took the subject very seriously and responsibly. So the difference between how the normal person is going to read it and the bullshit going on Twitter is pretty profound. Um, I'm glad the New York Times is, is finally taking this more seriously. Uh, their science reporter, Azine Gureshi, I always mispronounce her name, I think has done a better job on this. There's been a marked improvement in how the Times is covering this and how the Post is covering this. And when I say marked improvement, I don't even mean like they need to take some sort of anti-transition stance. That's not my stance. I just think they're starting to treat this more as the scientific controversy it is because it would require truly sticking your head in the sand to pretend that there isn't controversy over these treatments. Uh, I would point folks to the most recent article in my newsletter where I looked at some of the studies very closely. We talked about this last episode. 
these are incredibly weak studies. The studies purporting to show benefits. Sometimes they don't show benefits. Sometimes they do, but they're small in um, studies with no comparison group, where if people improve a little bit over time, it's impossible to attribute that uh, to any one thing, including blockers or hormones. So a lot going on here. Folks should jump in the queue if you have any questions about this or anything else. I'll start with Neil, who I, I think your question is not about this, which is, uh, which is fine. I forgive you. What's up, Neil? Yep. So I'm once again asking about a non-titular topic. But sure. um, so from one oppressed class member to another, I'm of course referring to our shared status as gamers. Exactly. Did you see the new Silk Song trailer? How excited for it are you? And will Silk Song be the next game you stream after Elden Ring? <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't see it. I've, the last few days have been um, just very busy. But I, uh, I take it I should check out this trailer. Yeah. Yeah. You should. Okay. Yeah. I feel bad. I don't know more to say to it, but I'll check it out, uh, and then maybe by next time I'll have some thoughts. Silk cool, Song. Cool. cool. Thank you, Neil. Klaus, what is up? I want to ask about the really long piece you just published. Yeah. Um, and the I was thinking in particular of study number five and where it broke it down by female to male and male to female. Yeah. Well, the study um, didn't – this was um, a study by Jack Turbin. So I just want to quickly fill people in so they can follow along. Um, yeah, yeah. It uses this, this I think, broken data set that were like they, – they circulated this sur- – it's the United States Transgender Survey – mostly circulated in like LGBT youth centers and other sort of politicized settings, which makes it hard to know if this is like suggests it's not a representative data set. It's hard to get a real representative data set of a group as small as a trans population. But um, this was a study that purported to show that among the subset of people who recalled ever wanting hormones, those who got them did better on some mental health measures than others. Michael Biggs, an Oxford sociologist uh, who's very skeptical of youth gender medicine, reanalyzed the data, and he broke down the results by natal sex, which Turbin and his colleagues didn't do, and which anyone studying this should do. Because if you're male and you take estrogen, you're taking a different – biologically male, you're taking a completely different substance than testosterone. They have completely different properties. Why would you lump those two together? You're, You're two groups taking two different drugs. He found that actually by Turbin's logic, which I'm skeptical of, estrogen seemed to seriously increase suicidality while testosterone seemed to have good effects. So that would mean the males and the females had totally different effects on average. I'm skeptical of the whole study's methodology for reasons you can see in the paper. Okay, sorry. This will help others follow your question in my response. Um, no, I, I actually – I think I think you might be referring to a different one. So this is the one that says um, – between 2013 and 2018, 50 participants who were naive to endocrine intervention completed three ways. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just talked over you and then explained totally the wrong study. I apologize. Well, now people have learned about two studies. There so we go. Good. Yeah. Um, well, you asked the question and then I'll, I'll explain what needs explaining. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, yeah, I, have, uh, I might just stick to one for now. But sure. the first question I have is there's a few results in there. There's this big table of results. And a couple have p-values of like 0.07, 0.06. And you mentioned that's not like significant by the traditional thresholds. But, you know, like 0.05, there's nothing magic about that number. It's an arbitrary. So isn't it fair to say that like there's some evidence in there? Um, Obviously, it's one. It's three results out of, I think, 10 in one study out of a million. Right. But yeah. I think there's something there, right? We can't just say that's statistically insignificant. And- no, I, I agree. So so in this study, this was the one where two-thirds of the participants were female to male, right? Um, 
I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it was because I can picture the table in my head, and and all the all the marginally significant p values were on the left, which was male to female. The right was male, uh, yeah, female to male. Um, yes, so it was. Uh, I think it was 50 people. Two thirds of them were female to male. Female to male, there was there was nothing. There were no results, and just there was nothing there. Male to female, there were some marginal results suggesting some improvement. Um, yeah, setting aside the other problems with the study, sure. If you want to say there's like a flicker of evidence for the male to female group, that's one third of the sample. For two thirds of the sample, for there was nothing there. So I, that's why I just thought it was a really underwhelming study. And then that study is often cited as evidence, full stop, that these treatments work. No, for two thirds of your sample, there was no evidence the treatments helped at all. Uh, for male to female, yeah, I'd say like a little bit of evidence, a little something. Uh, so I, I think that's probably the fairest way to describe the results. Right. There's also a multiple comparison issue, right? Because um, if I just randomly generated 100 variables and started running regressions between them, I would find statistical significance. Yeah, right? so and, and that's often why people adopt a lower um, p-value threshold for significance, which I, I'm not sophisticated enough to know. I mean, part of it is you need – did you run comparisons you didn't report? Um this is why things like pre-registering your hypotheses and, and, and like making clear what was exploratory data analysis, what was not part of the original plan is important. In this particular study, I just don't know. Um, it, it wasn't like they ran 30 comparisons. There was, it seemed like there was a smaller number. It just We don't know if there were ones they didn't report, but that is a potential issue in this and any study, yes. Yeah, and I have one more and question about this sort of stuff that – I mean, maybe it's it's beyond the scope of like a call in. Sure. But are, you're familiar with like cardinal versus ordinal data, right? So ordinal data is just ranked versus like cardinal data. We can make real comparisons. So if someone yeah. goes from yeah, someone goes from like twenty dollars an hour to forty dollars an hour, you know, their wage doubled. But if someone goes from like the twentieth best college football team to the fortieth best, they didn't get twice as bad. It's just a ranking. Yeah. Um, so when you look at these, what they had is their like Y variables there, the, these like depression scales, it seemed like they're running linear regressions, treating these variables as cardinal. But it, it seems to me if you're just asking people questions, like someone who scores 25 on a scale would be more depressed than someone who's, well, let me use different numbers. Someone who scores 20 on a scale would be more depressed than someone who scores 10 but I would think of that as an ordinal ranking, right? They're not twice as depressed. So maybe I'm overthinking it, but is that common in psychology to treat those as cardinal? Or did any of that make sense? No, it made sense. I'm I'm not sure how common that is, and I'd have to look at like the specific instance. But I, I think in general, I was just DMing with a sociologist I know, and he basically just thinks like clinicians in general, um, and a lot of the people authoring these studies are clinicians, are not particularly good at statistics. That's like not what they focus on. Um, right. Maybe that's an unfair knock on them, but I think it's pretty common. And I, I know uh, in Turbin's work, like a lot of, there's just a lot of wonkiness. There's one of the tables doesn't make sense. He talks about like, a reduced um, adjusted odd, reducing the risk of something by 123%, which on its face doesn't make sense. You can't reduce the risk of something more than 100%. So, um, yeah, I can't answer your question specifically, but it would not surprise me if that if there were issues like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you had the answer. Just it's, I mean, is there someone I should like? <laughs> 
ask like a Andrew. Yeah, Gellman I was gonna. I was gonna suggest Gelman. He's really weird. He's like the guy for all yeah. this. I wish he'd take a look at some of the youth gender medicine stuff. It's just like. I mean, his theory is just that all all social science research is broken. But I just there's there's folks in like the open science and replication space who I think don't want to touch this. I'm not accusing Gelman of that, but I think some of them like it, there's just no upside career wise to critiquing this particular area of medicine. But uh, the standards are pretty low. Anyway, thank you, Klaus. Sorry, I uh, initially veered us off track. Patrick, what is up? Hey, Jesse, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, so. I know that you mentioned uh, that there uh, has been some tiny of the backlash uh, that happens whenever one of these uh, trans pieces come out. I saw some uh, retweets that uh, I think either you or someone else had been posting where it's kind of along the lines of the standpoint bureaucracy where it's like, well, if a trans author had written this, they would be able to see the faults and all the anti-trans hate and whatnot. But but my kind of question is, is that the article was, I guess I would say fair in the sense of the fact that for all the people uh, who kind of made those claims regarding conversion therapy, you also had like, uh, I think Marcy Bowers, uh, Leaper, and uh, Eric, Dr. Erica Anderson, uh, who are all trans. So kind of what do they make when like these, at least two two of them, uh, Bowers and uh, uh, Eric, Dr. Anderson are kind of our also, she also. I was glad she also interviewed Nate Sharon, who I interviewed, who's another trans clinician. I think there were four trans clinicians. Yeah, I mean, this is why the standpoint stuff, as it is, plays out on Twitter, is incredibly dumb. Like, trans people have a wide range of opinions on this. Of course they do. Uh, and the idea that I, I, I got in trouble with this. There was, I was on a listserv, and it got leaked. The stuff I wrote about this, but I stand by completely. I said it's not. It's not as though. A trans person simply by being trans magically has access to social scientific knowledge others lack. I do think we all have biases and that being in a group can make you more sensitive to biases. But I also think being in a group can have negative impacts on your ability to attain true knowledge. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm Jewish American and in some pockets of of American Jews, I think there's like pretty crazy conspiracy theorizing about Arabs and about like Obama and Israel. So that, that would maybe on balance, make it harder for me to get to the truth about like, so I, so I'm seeing in comments, still it's complicated drink, but it is complicated. The standpoint stuff's incredibly complicated. There's no way to say because this person has these identity characteristics, they will be better equipped to answer these questions. Um, unless it's something like, you know, someone who's trans living in small town America, they're best equipped to answer the subjective question of like what it feels like to be a trans person in small town America. Sure. But why it's, it's, I don't know. There's something totemizing about the idea that because someone has a superficial identity characteristic, they're automatically more equipped to answer like pretty complicated questions that require a lot of time and energy to um, understand. I went on a little rant, but I think that was more, that was basically what you were asking. Well, that is what I was asking. I guess my second kind of point follow-up is Jack Turbin seems to be a person who keeps popping up in this field a lot because he provides responses that I think people want. He's not trans to my knowledge, is he? He's not trans. He's he's gay for what's that what that's worth. And the way this works, um, I'll tell you guys how the sausage is made. If you're a journalist and you're writing about trans issues for the first time, you reach out to GLAD or HRC or one of those groups, and there's nothing wrong with that. They will give you a list of experts. Turbin's name will always be, almost always be on it. Uh, and then Turbin will become your quote-unquote source on this subject. And because you're new to this subject, you won't know, for example, 
you won't be aware of the fact that he has 20 to 30 less years experience than Laura Edwards Leaper, Erica Anderson. You won't know that he, there's a lot of people who disagree with him. Um, and then it's just like, you know, journalists fall into a rut. You don't, who has time to like really reach out to 10 clinicians rather than three. And he's sort of in your Rolodex. Not that anyone has Rolodexes anymore. Uh, and he always gives the good quote saying that the science is settled on this stuff. I guess my second follow-up to that would be, so in terms of the sausage being made, you reach out to kind of known activist groups to point you in the direction as a journalist to kind of get answers, but doesn't that seem kind of like self-selecting? I don't know. It feels like kind of, I guess you do ask like the police in a criminal case kind of what's going on, but just kind of to take their word at face value that they might be pointing you to like, I guess, kind of truth, it seems to be like, I mean, you don't have to go to, like, the Heritage Foundation to get, like, the opposite doctors to research, but I, I don't know. It feels like with that whole I, thing that was going on. I in- think you're – yeah, no, I mean, you're totally right, but you're assu- I think where you're wrong is you're assuming that the average 26-year-old journalist on this issue, writing on this issue, uh, wouldn't be content to just write a quick piece where they, quote, glad and don't provide the other side because they don't remember. There's an increasing number of journalists who don't think there is another side on this and many other subjects. What other side is there to even report on? I suppose that's fair. I just I don't know. There's always so much. Uh, I guess. I know you're right. I don't know. I just wish people had more curiosity about subjects. <laughs> yeah, about- dude, I'm, dude, I'm totally with you. And I think the uh, evisceration of like true reporters the kind of reporter like when i was at the boston globe when i was at the editorial page you know you would have uh neighborhood groups come into the boston globe's office and meet with the editorial page and that was part of the process but no one was like yeah then we just need to report everything they say that's not journalism and you know a lot of journalists are acting more like activists to repeat myself anyway those are very good questions and uh yes you should be continue to get more jaded about journalism (laughs) thank you Thanks, Patrick. What's up, AJ? Got to uh, unmute your phone. I'll give you five seconds, and then <clears throat> I'll skip, but you can jump back. Oh, there we go. Yes. Hey, hey Jesse, hey. where are you? How's it going? Not too bad, not too bad. Sorry, uh, I thought someone else was ahead of me there. That's why I, was, uh, that's why I missed that. Apologies. Okay. Um, I just wanted to uh, let you know about uh, media firestorm and controversy that's happening uh, where I'm from at the moment in Ireland. Um, it's about the trans debate and trans issues. So um, in Ireland, there's uh, a public broadcaster like the BBC in the UK. It's called RTE. And their flagship show is a show called Liveline, where they have um, people call in and discuss issues of the day and public issues. And it's like the most popular show. Um, and they discuss all sorts of different things. And it's generally not all that controversial, although it does often drive some news cycles in terms of holding politicians to account, that type of thing. Um, but anyway, uh, they had three shows this week about where they discussed trans and uh, gender identity issues. And it just turned into a massive firestorm and controversy and started with the Dublin Pride organization um, saying that they wanted to disassociate themselves from RTE. RTE, the broadcaster, was supposed to be one of their major sponsors at their upcoming Pride Festival. And they said that they couldn't uh, continue their association because they had facilitated hate-filled discussions and triggering discussions um, about uh, the trans community and gender issues and promoting uh, anti-trans rhetoric, and now um, the head of or the heads of uh, the public broadcaster are being called into um, Parliament, essentially like being uh, called in front of the House Committee or the Senate Committee in the in the US to discuss why they um, 
facilitated hateful discussion. But no he investigated by Parliament. Oh, I mean, not they're, they're going to do the grandstanding thing, questioning journalists why they did journalism. Oh, he just got dropped. Uh, that happened on his own, dude. I did. I I would admit it if I screwed something up. Come back and I'll get you. Uh, I'll get you next. Let's take Cole for now. Sorry about that, man. Cole, what is up? Hey, Jesse, can you hear me? Yep. Hey, so I've got a question about the NYT Magazine article and one of Jack Turbin's responses. Yep. I think it'll be interesting to hear from you as someone who has to write about scientific research and statistics in a way that's accessible. Um, one of his quibbles was with the sentence that says, but the studies didn't find the same link between taking the medications in adolescence and actually planning or attempting suicide. Yep. So as I understand it, Jack's uh, frustration here is he thinks this is suggesting that the data found definitively that there's no link saying that, you know, when, when he says, no, the studies were just underpowered, it just was, was inconclusive. I, I mean, one, do you think, do you think Jack's fair here? Or, and, and two, you know, how do you go about characterizing um, research, you know, even when it is underpowered, whether, you know, to, to try not to imply uh, that it finds more than it does and, and to try to be fair um, about the way that you characterize it. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought she characterized it fairly. This was a point I raised in my article where um, I include the whole table of their results. And basically for this, again, I should preface this. I think the whole methodology is broken. I do not think his method can tell us anything on this issue pro or con, but if you assume the methods, okay. Um, yeah, they found reduced risk of suicidal ideation. Just uh, have you thought seriously of killing yourself in the last 12 months? On um, the questions of have you thought, like, do you have a plan to do so or have you attempted suicide? They found just bupkis. There was no link at all between those two variables. Remember, this is comparing all the kids, all the people who said they ever wanted hormones comparing those who got them and those who didn't there, there could not have been less there. It wasn't, it wasn't, and this is stuff that a is hard to explain and B even statisticians will argue over how to interpret, um, coefficients versus P values. But like, there's basically nothing there suggesting any link at all. Like it's not their particular data. It's not controversial. There's nothing there. So I thought the way Bazelon framed it was fair. And I think he's trying to have it both ways because He's saying when we get the results, we can tout them. But if we don't get the results, oh, it's a lack of statistical power. This was also a really big sample. Um, now, I don't know how big the subgroups were. I think maybe there aren't that many kids in each subgroup. But uh, I don't know. I, I basically think the way she said it was fair. And I think it was a glaring omission that they didn't even try to explain in their article. I mean, that's another thing. Why don't you try to explain in your article why – why you get all these like unimpressive results. They don't mention anything. I don't think about uh, things being statistically underpowered, but um, I do lean on statisticians for more specific questions on this stuff. Like if I'm looking at like one particular table uh, and I think it's often genuinely controversial, you know, when something is statistically underpowered, when it's fair to say two things are linked and all that. My general gripe is that, Turbin consistently exaggerates what his research says, and he'll uh, look at like very shaky correlational data and describe it as causal, which is like, you know, week one of a methods class, what you're not supposed to do. Thanks. Yep. All right. Uh, AJ, let's bring you back. Uh, okay, wait. So the parliament brought in these journalists to explain why they did journalism? Yeah, no, they, they've called them in. They haven't actually uh, appeared yet. They're due in, I think, uh, 
next week. Um, but yeah, it's just caused a massive, massive controversy. But uh, no one has, or nothing uh, that I can see, uh, has cited in any of their complaints any examples of like what this horrific hate speech was. And uh, there was a very good article in one of the main um, broadcast or main papers today, where a journalist just said, like, the last time, um, like, there was this censorious effort in the country of Ireland. Like, it's, it's, it used to be very, very conservative and religiously conservative, and the Catholic Church essentially controlled everything. And it was the bishops in the church who were trying to police what people could say about sex and sexuality. And then Ireland became very, very liberal over the last twenty years, and we had you know huge uh, referendums in the last you know, five years where they voted to uh, legalize gay marriage and then they voted to legalize abortion. Like Ireland was one of the last countries in the Western world where abortion was still illegal and they um, voted to uh, legalize it um, uh, about three years ago. And the public broadcaster facilitated all those debates. And there was very lively debates had about those issues. And the public broadcaster has now come out and defended himself, you know, against these complaints and said, look, like it's, it's unfortunate if people are offended by certain um, challenging things that are discussed, but you know we we believe we fulfil an important role in facilitating debate and discussion, and it's just I suppose really really interesting to see this massive media firestorm um, about just the discussion of trans and gender issues uh, by a national broadcaster, um, and there you know the Taoiseach, which is the prime minister, and the deputy prime minister both had to make public um, comments about this today as well. Like so, it's a huge huge national issue at the moment. And I just can't see what the actual offence is. It just seems you're not allowed to debate or discuss in any um, capacity at the moment. Yeah, it seems like there's a pattern where, and I feel like you can't have this both ways. Like, so, so people are calling for genuine revisions to how we understand like sex and gender and men and women. And sometimes they're calling for those revisions to be written to law. And sometimes they are written into law. But then if people disagree with them, they're told you can't even discuss your disagreement with it because that's hate speech. I, I, I'm i not sure I've ever quite seen an issue like this. Like I'm sure if I went back and looked at the gay marriage uh, argument in the States, I'm sure there was some like over-the-top rhetoric from lefties about you, know, you can't even debate this. But it seemed like at the time we couldn't afford to not debate it because it, you know, we were seeking a break from the status quo. You can't. I don't understand this at all. I think it's like a useful source of uh, site of grandstanding for a lot of politicians. And yeah, what, what you're describing to me reminds me of what's going on in the States where the people who want to change the law, you know, refuse to engage in discussion of that, which is not healthy for democracy. Yeah, like I suppose debate entails trying to win over hearts and minds. And this isn't interested in winning over hearts and minds. It's It's interested in enforcing an orthodoxy and having everyone either agree to it publicly or shut up like that's that's basically the difference i think in terms of the previous debates which were engaged in good faith and this which is just trying to enforce a very very strict orthodoxy and one of the things they were discussing like you mentioned there about legislation was changes to you know um terminology in maternity legislation because it obviously referenced women because it's historical legislation and it was about, you know, changing it to persons or, you know, wh whatever the different terms they were, they were trying to um, be, be more inclusive to account for the, the people, you know, who are trans men, et cetera, who can yep, attend yep. maternity services. Like, so, like, even those discussions, they apparently had non-binary people on talking about it, trans people on, and, you know, a, a, a wide cohort of people on debating these issues. And it just seems like that the fact that a debate was held and there was people who disagreed, that was just 
totally forbidden or verboten and it needs to be shut down because there is no room for debate, apparently, yeah. and, and any deviance from the orthodoxy is phobic, hate-filled, and it's just really... Uh, it's not I, good. This reminds me of the, the Nolan Report series on like Stonewall and the BBC where you can understand why an organization like Stonewall wants to you know, show it's close to a race organization, but behind... I think behind the scenes, there's just some like pretty anti-journalistic, anti, you know, arguably anti-democratic, I don't want to say anti-democratic in a case like the BBC, but it's definitely not journalistic to have these tight links between journalistic organizations and advocacy groups of any sort. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to look more into that Ireland stuff. That sounds very interesting to me. Thanks for letting me back on again. Cheers. Of course. I'm going to bump my buddy Chris to the front just because it's been a minute. Chris, I hope you're ready. Uh, I am. I was relaxing uh, <laughs> and interrupted, but thanks anyway, Jesse. And uh, Chris yeah. is a co-host of uh, uh, the Guru um, Decoding the Gurus, which people should check out. Yes, that, that's right. Thank you for the free advertisement. And uh, uh, yeah, I heard Heterodox Academy. It's not free, by the way. I'm well, going to be sending so. you an invoice for that. <laughs> As usual, that's all right. Um, so I I I've seen the fallout from this uh, article, and I I read your recent piece, um, the kind of deep dive in the studies, and the, I haven't looked into this area, but based on you know the studies that you shared, it looks like the overall level of research is like quite low quality. But one of the questions I had specifically is like, this is all picking place post-replication crisis, right? And so it's now pretty common or standard practice for pre-registrations and potentially like uh, adversal collaborations to happen. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, is there no pre-registered studies or, you know, potentially collaborations between researchers who have more... Uh, like conservative or or you know skeptical views versus those that are more advocacy is, is that just like none of that exists at all as far as i'm aware of no and you think there's i'm i feel like in the back of my head i can think of like one or two studies where there's at least some like actual pre-registration but i'm i'm failing to some of them no this mostly appears to be like just really weak research that that isn't caught up to the times, like in terms of what the best psychologists are now doing. The adversarial collaboration thing is interesting. Part of the problem is like it's really hard to do any sort of random assignment here. Um, it's unfortunately settled in as orthodoxy that you you can't do you can't do like an RCT because like that's so dangerous because these treatments work so well. But that's like total sort of question begging. We don't we don't know they work well and we have a lot of studies where they don't seem to do much. So I guess it I don't even I am I'm, I'm I'm having a hard time even figuring out what sort of adversarial collaboration here would be realistic. Did you have something in mind in particular? No worries if you didn't. Well I was thinking, you know, people like Eric Anderson who I know now they're quite controversial, but they in, based on that article, it seemed that people have different prayers about how likely or unlikely things are, right? And so, yeah. it, it and yet they're all a lot of them are part of the same organization. So it seems like you know that there would be scope for having 
people collaborate together on a study that they agree beforehand. Um, and, and in terms of like pre-registration, it doesn't even have to be setting people into, you know, different conditions, which could have ethical questions, but things like just pre-registering the analysis so that if you're going to run a bunch of regressions and, you know, show comparisons that you, you set the thresholds in advance and you say what you're going to take as, yeah. you know, a, a like positive result. No, that would be a massive improvement. Also, like, as I talk this through out loud, you could even like even just say we're going to do a consecutive sample of the next 200 kids who show up at this gender clinic and we're going to commit to check and and some people are doing versions of this but we're going to commit to checking in with them over the next 5 years and most importantly we're going to really try to figure out the ones who are lost to follow up what happens to them and then maybe the adversarial collaboration thing is you could have people pre-register this would be more like prediction stuff, but like, you know, predictions of like what percentage of kids who start blockers stay on them and what percentage of kids detransition. That's exactly the kind of data we have, like almost none of that would be incredibly useful here. So, yeah, I think I think I was too um, skeptical of just because you can't do random assignment or, 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 or real comparisons. I, I think you're right. There's probably opportunities here. My sense is clinicians. um are not particularly hip when it comes to like open science and replication stuff. So maybe that might be another good reason to get more open science people, you know, to take a look at this stuff and, and to raise their voices about it a little bit. Yeah. Though, like you said, I don't think almost anybody has that on their, you know, high up on their list of things they want to do. Well, we got to find the folks who have no instincts for self-preservation and have them lead the effort. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, the, you can aim for the more uh, spectrum inclined people. But uh, so I, I the last question, Jesse, and then I'll disappear is that so I saw Jack Turbin's response um, and kind of, you know, the quibbling over whether it was right to say he responded or not. But um I'm aware of like selective calls for rigor and the way that he presented the kind of odds ratio in his response seemed, you know, not great, (laughs) but um, he mentioned that there was a, uh, somebody contacted who said that there were these three studies and that they, and offered some alternative explanations. Right. And he highlighted the table in the paper where these factors were statistically controlled for and I, I just wondered. I know it's like a very specific technical question. No, I almost, I almost know. tweeted about this. He's not, he's not being fully honest. So the question is, okay, you have the link between. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. But the question is, if you find a link between access to hormones for youth and reduce suicidality, is that causal, or could you be leaving out confounded variable, confounding variables like? Maybe it's their mental health driving the association. If you have bad mental health, you can't get hormones and you know, you're know you more suicidal. Or maybe it's a lack of parental support. If you have a lack of parental support, you won't get hormones. Same deal. If you look at the PLOS One study, um, no, they did not control for everything they should have controlled for. And they, the controls or the adjustments they use varies widely by like each test they run. You, this is right in the table that I included in my article. There's no explanation for why they include such different controls in each model. And that's like a classic sign of p-hacking usually. It's sort of weird here because they also got a lot of unimpressive results. But there's just no explanation. So I I thought he – I almost tweeted about this. I wanted to like 
make sure I had it completely right. I also don't want to spend too much time tweeting about Jack Turbin, but I, I thought he was a little bit misleading because I, I don't think he's been consistent in controlling or adjusting for everything, all these potential confounding variables, and definitely in the PLOS One study he was not. On top of all this, this is like this is all self-report. This is all people remembering whether they were suicidal, whether they got hormones. This data set has a huge problem where three-quarters of the kids who said they went on blockers – uh, the researchers behind the survey, they threw out their responses because they said they went on their blockers after age 16, which is basically impossible. So I think there's like just huge questions over whether this data set tells us anything about like these tricky issues involving whether and to what extent access to these treatments are correlated with suicide. Did I, I just was talking a lot. Did that more or less answer your question? No, that's perfect. And I, I agree with you that like the, the issues with the data set overall are like the bigger issue. So I'm actually just impressed that you did know about that specific. Very well, it's just because I'm an know, obsessive weirdo, and I, I was I almost tweeted about it because if you just if if folks look at the table, I mean, not everyone will have the sort of training to to get this. Not that it's super advanced, but if you look at the table from the PLOS One study in my article, you'll see every row. There's a little superscript A, B, C, D, E, and there's just different controls in each one. And it's just not clear why they're different, and. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. So uh, thanks very much. I'll stop hogging the time. But no, no worries. Please, Chris. Philip, what is up? Uh, make a nice caller. And also, hey, we're going to cap it. Justin's going to be the last. He's the last person in the queue. He'll be the last caller. So no one else jump in. Philip, what's up? Hey, you're very, very uh, low. Is there a way to boost your mic? Yeah. Nope. Still very low. Um, all right, Philip, I'll Thank take you, you next. Oh, hey, I just, Philip, I'll take you next. Shauna, uh, go ahead. Hey, good afternoon. Great live show. Obviously. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm going to ask a very normie question here that uh, an uneducated normie that um, I don't mean anything insulting by asking this question. So I, I'm going to preface it with that. Um, has there been any kind of studies or just observation by journalists looking into specifically gender youth transitions um, based upon race and socioeconomic uh, background? Yeah, there was just, I think it was annual review of sociology. This just came out. Um, I think it's annual review of sociology. It basically found patterns suggesting that among younger people, uh, I think, don't quote me on this. I hope you guys actually pulled the study, but I believe whiter kids and more educated kids or young people were more likely to come out as trans recently, and and, fe- and natal females, of course. Right. Yeah. Because I could just—I'll just say, as someone that has no background in this, nor dog in, in the fight, that from a standing back, like any person can see, there's some trends um, anecdotally. Yeah of guessing who's going to come out or who's going to pursue certain therapies. And I just wonder if clinicians try to take that into account um, at all based upon if, if they believe there's social influence. Yeah, no, I mean, the good one, the good one is try to get a holistic picture of the kid. And that would, I've been told this, I mean, I haven't talked to interviewed as many gender clinicians lately, but when I was for my Atlantic article, the big divide was some will absolutely like 
you know, what, uh, what do you check out on Tumblr? When did you realize your, tr-? you know, they're, they, they're good at this. They ask these questions in a compassionate, non-judgmental way, but of course they're interested in the sort of the ideology of the, um, gender dysphoria and they would view it as at the very least a sign to slow down before proceeding to like blockers or hormones. If a kid did go on a YouTube binge and then like seemingly overnight, uh, come out as trans. That doesn't mean the kid didn't feel that way before because sometimes it's hard to talk about, but yeah. I mean, everyone knows teenagers like transmit and receive social messages and that the culture, everyone knows this. It's it's the pretending we don't know this and what this one particular area has been so ridiculous. And I, you know, I was glad Baslon's piece mentioned it because it's definitely a thing and a good clinician will take it into account. Unfortunately, there's a lot of shitty clinicians. Yeah, that that's interesting and and disheartening. And and again, I don't mean to act naive, like oh, I'm you know uh, disappointed, but it is disappointing. And in the same way, I think you made a great analogy before, when I guess there's pushback that sometimes there's not enough researchers or inputs from people who have transitioned. But looking at data, like I, I don't I don't see again as someone not informed on this why it should matter. I mean, that's like saying that anyone who conducts a a long-term study following uh, weight loss patients that the clinicians or the scientists involved have to have had lost a certain amount of weight themselves first or so. I mean, it just, it it seems odd. So, well, I appreciate that. And the safe quote, safe space to ask kind of dumb questions. So thanks. Thanks. That was a dumb question. Thanks, John. All right, Philip, let's see if your mic problem is, uh, Resolved. Sorry, man. Just try to talk a little louder. I'll try to at least make out what you're saying. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, there, that's good. Go. I guess it's related. I remember some people made a joke, like some people were misgendering. You had an episode a couple of months back. It seemed jokes or wishing that. Is there some sort of double standard on regulate such issues? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting a lot of feedback on my voice. Can you just uh, mute yourself, Philip? Um, I think there probably are some double standards. It's hard to know for sure because the process for complaining and moderating is so opaque. And I imagine when you complain, the first step is some sort of algorithm filters it. And I also imagine they're inundated with complaints. Technically, yes. People tried to report this bizarre tweet about someone um, fantasizing about raping me. And it it was not found to violate Twitter. Uh the rules. Uh, I, when I reported it firsthand, I think they did take it down. So I think if firsthand reports maybe are like more potent, but yeah, I, I found Twitter does not seem to have consistent um, policies on this. So yeah, absolutely. It seems like a double standard to me. I just don't want to like f- sort of make that accusation for sure because no one really knows how the moderation works. And a lot of the times, uh, you know, stupidity or disorganization turns out to be a better explanation than malice or bias, but so it's hard to say. I had from last week that I wasn't going to ask. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, uh, glad to answer it. Thanks, Phil. All right. John and then Justin. Charlie, I said a minute ago we're going to have to wrap it up with Justin. I will have to go after that, but if you uh, jump in next time, I'll, I'll get you first. If you just, Charlie, if you join the next one or next one you're in, just chat. Remind me that I said I'd bump you and I'll bump you to the front. But for now, John, what's up? Uh, hey, Jesse. Uh, big fan of the pod here. Uh, Thank you. Just wanted to talk to you, I guess, about kind of the 
shall we say, like, you know, the communication aspect of all of this, where, um, I don't know, I have a lot of, like, very liberal, normie friends. I'm gay, so we're all, like, you know, on board with that kind of stuff. But it's just, I found found myself in recent conversations, like, like, thinking to myself, oh, my God, I sound like I'm ranting about crazy stuff right now. Like, and these normal people, you know, they don't, if I started talking about p-values and, like, actually this study is biased and this, that, or the other... I don't know. It just kind of sounds a little bit kooky. And even though I think that you're doing good work, you know, referring, you know, referring people to a important Jesse single article about the, you know, why this, the methodology of this study isn't, you know, up to snuff is not really a good argument, I guess. And like, yeah, uh, basic conversation. So I, I, I guess I'm just looking for a way to talk about all of this stuff with non-scientific people that, you know, isn't so much an argument about, well, they're not doing good science and here's all the specific reasons why, but, you know, something a bit more accessible. And and so I guess I'm wondering, are there other examples of activists leading the scientific community in a a wrong direction? Because I feel like that's a big stumbling point is that people say usually the activists are ahead of the curve, not leading people in the wrong direction. No, I mean, yeah, there's, you know, the recovered memory epidemic, people often draw comparisons um, I don't know how valid the comparison is. I'd have to think about it more. But like, this was an example of like a bunch of activists for basically sex abuse victims and a bunch of clinicians who had really shitty ideas about the nature of memory and and clinical practices more broadly. Just did a tremendous amount of harm. And part of the reason they were able to do harm is people who stood up and and raised questions. Um, Elizabeth Loftus is most famous for that. You know, they were told that they were on the side of child molesters or they didn't care about kids getting hurt. So I think there's some of that same level of moral panic. And I think maybe there's a way to formulate the argument where you don't need to get into the, the P values weeds, but you basically just say, like, everyone acknowledges uh, hormones in particular are really serious treatments. I mean, I think blockers are too. Don't you want us to have good data if we're going to give these treatments to kids? Um, and I don't really know a way to avoid at some point talking about you know, the science being weak, but, uh, it's hard not to sound conspiratorial. Someone said this online, but like, it's hard not to sound conspiratorial, but yeah, that's this- my concern is I sound yeah. like a dark Weber, you know? No, like, but you I know, mean, I want to have like a real conversation about this. There's been this genuine attempt to pretend that there's an overwhelming scientific consensus here. And there's not luckily like the bodies that have looked into this in the UK, Sweden, Finland, they've all found the same thing. You know, you can point people to the NICE review uh, in the UK, NICE, where actual experts look at this evidence and like this evidence is really weak. So um, yeah, I guess I don't have a good answer to your question of how to like not make it a little bit nerdy because it is a nerdy subject. And, and there's, it feels like those who want good science communication on this now are playing from behind and have to play catch up because it's been like years now of this drumbeat of like, the science is great. The science is great. These treatments are wonderful. And, and it, I, I think it's important to push back against that. Uh, well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. And uh, again, big fan of your work. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you for the call, John. Justin will be our final caller for today. Uh, you're very low. I wonder if this is a problem with the app, but can you just um, just yell a little bit or speak up a lot? Huh, it's still low, but I, I can I can just make you out. Hopefully, I'll normalize it uh, when we. But yeah, try to ask your question. I'll see if I can hear you. Not. Yeah, a rude awakening in what sense? Um, oh, that's good. 
Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I'm obviously would like people not to think I'm bad or crazy. Uh, I'm, I'm more interested in and hopeful about the broader conversation getting saner. And I, I just think like, as it gets more and more common for kids to go on blockers and hormones, as this issue comes to more schools and to more families, people are going to seek out good information on it. And I think, you know, I luckily I have a platform where hopefully I can help provide that. And I think like the trajectories of the Washington Post and the New York Times have both been very good on this. So I think there's a lot of reason to hope for hope. Yeah, it, it's harder to call them transphobes, although some people have tried. I can speculate. I think what usually happens is Tumblr is like 15 and 16 and 17 and 20-year-olds playing around with ac- academic ideas in a loose and playful way. Um, and, you know, the Tumblr version of gender theory or whatever is always going to be a little bit sillier and more playful and, and less well-defined i think tumblr has has had a massive impact it's hard to pin it down or to know like would something else have had the same impact but a lot of the especially in online spaces where you are just a block of text and an avatar that makes identity much more important it gives you cachet it gives you currency and i think that can partly explain what's going on um I'm not sure how much like legitimate academic theory because the ba- the basic theory here is very simple. It's that everything is what you say it is. Sex and gender are just what you say they are. If you say you're male, you're male. If you say you're, it's not like academically sophisticated. It's Tumblr. It's it's just not questioning people when they say they are. So I'm sure that Tumblr is like a heady mix of various bastardized and adulterated like you know queer theory, gender studies. But I, I think it's Tumblr is really its own thing, and I think that's I think the biggest influence. Thank you for the call, Justin. Uh, Charlie, I will get to you next time. Just remind me. Uh, sorry about that. I just I got to roll out. But thank you guys, everyone, for listening. Uh, I, I know I sound tired by the end. That's not you. It's me. It's been a long few days. But uh, this was a really good one. Good questions. Uh, I always like when you guys push me to explain my positions. I would just ask if you like this to uh, recommend my newsletter and this show, Blocked Reported. Again, that live one uh, will be going up soon. Thank you guys again, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. If I don't talk to you before then, farewell.